0: just last sunday todd and i gathered with some of the youth from our congregation over in the building next door during our second hour and um, we were thinking through our class wading in the water which is a class to help our youth explore baptism and discern whether they're ready to take that step in their faith and we kind of go through the fundamentals of our faith that we share here together as a congregation and last week we were spending time in the first three chapters of Genesis and we were taking some time to notice these two different representations of God that we see here. So we were struck by how these representations of God are actually quite vastly different sitting side by side in the very beginning of our sacred text. The God that we met in chapter one was cosmic, celestial, hovering over the chaotic waters and speaking order into chaos. God was big. And then in chapters 2 and 3 we met a God who was embodied and present and walking through a garden during the evening breeze speaking with Adam and Eve looking for them when they went missing God was close, intimate. So in these creation accounts God is both vast cosmic God is unknowable. He's bigger than we can fathom. And God is close and tactile and utterly knowable. Now, why am I telling you that when our scripture focus is John 14 this morning? Well, because this theme of an unknowable God becoming utterly knowable is exactly what Jesus is expressing to his disciples in John 14. So today is the fifth Sunday in Easter and in our Easter journey this year, we've been walking through Lent and Easter along Jesus's journey interacting with the people he meets along the way, seeing the things he's engaging. He has died. He has been risen. He has commanded his followers to go and make disciples. And today in the lectionary, it has sent us into a flashback. And we're going back to John 14. And at this point, In the flashback, Jesus is engaging in a farewell address with his closest friends. At this point in the biography of Jesus that the author of John has written, he has washed the disciples' feet. Judas has left the building. A new commandment has been given the disciples to love one another as Jesus has loved them. And Jesus has foretold Peter's denial. And after all that business has been attended to, Jesus enters into the centerpiece of this farewell address when he will prepare his disciples for his imminent departure. And it's here at Jesus' final meal that he begins to impart his final words to his closest friends friends and followers. And I couldn't help but think about in 1993, there was a movie called My Life with Michael Keaton. And in the movie, Michael Keaton's character has just kind of made it. In life, he's got the great job, he's got a gorgeous wife, she's expecting their firstborn son. And right at the pinnacle of when his life seems to be gaining some steam, Michael Keaton is informed that he only has four months left to live. And so he decides, with that four months, to make a video diary for his coming son. And in that video diary, he starts to address all the critical things that sons need to learn from their fathers. So he shows him how to shave, up, down, never sideways, right? He takes him to his childhood home and he starts to show him all the secrets of that place and the things that he learned in his youth. And as he's, kind of imparting this final wisdom. He's learning things about himself. And what's happening in John 14 isn't all that different. Jesus is doing something very similar. His final wisdom to his disciples will span three chapters. But this morning, we're just catching the beginning. The first and foremost things that are on Jesus' mind as he knows he's about to leave his closest friends. And so Jesus sandwiches this entire farewell address with the thing that is most pressing on the minds of his beloved. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He's addressing their most immediate need. Jesus is aware of where his departure is going, what it's going to look like, and they are troubled. Now interestingly in this first verse of our passage, uh, the word for hearts here is actually singular in the Hebrew so what Jesus is saying to his friends gathered around the table is let not your plural heart singular be troubled Jesus is highlighting in John that this is the church a gathered group of people with a singular heart And we can get so caught up can't we In all of the things that make us different, in our opinions and our interpretations, our feelings. But in this passage, Jesus is telling us we are a body that shares a unified heart. And there are times when our heart will be troubled. Now, this word for troubled happens three other times in John's gospel. And in each instance, the word is describing Jesus as agitation and his disturbance, his utter disturbance in the face of the power of death and evil. It's not just describing sadness. Jesus is about to leave this group of people that have been with him on a social revolution, and I don't know if you know this, but revolutions are dangerous. Jesus knows that his departure is going to be rough. He will be arrested. He will be unjustly tried. He will be tortured, and he will be executed So when he says, do not let your heart be troubled, he's not being overly sentimental, but he is exhorting his friends to stand firm in the face of a really hard road ahead, when it may look as if evil and death are having their way, when they're faced with fear and anxiety and dread, Do not let your heart be troubled. And so, in the face of this imminent trouble, Jesus finds himself comforting his friends by telling them that he's going ahead of them to prepare a place and that there is plenty of room there for everyone. In my house, there are many dwelling places. Now, according to N.T. Wright, this term for dwelling places that's used in this passage uh, is also used when John is describing the temple. Now, in the life of the Israelite community, the temple, this word for dwelling place, is the place where heaven meets earth. That's the word that's being used here. The temple was the place where Jesus is hinting that a new city is about to begin. A new world is starting. A new house is being built. Now, we have been spending a lot of time in John throughout Lent and Easter season. And I don't know if you have picked up on this yet, but there's a lot of instances where Jesus is talking to people and they are interpreting everything he's saying very literally. And often in those moments, Jesus has to kind of redirect the group, redirect the person. We saw it when he was talking to Nicodemus, and he told Nicodemus he had to be born again. And then we saw it again later when Jesus is meeting the woman at the well and he's talking to her about this water that he can give that will become in her a spring gushing up into eternal life. And the responses of the people are so literal, right? How can I enter my mother's womb again and be born another time? Where is this water? So I don't have to keep coming down to this well day in and day out. And in each of these instances, Jesus has to kind of describe, guys, I'm talking about something different. And again, here in John 14, when Jesus is talking about a dwelling place, this is a noun derived from the word meno, a verb that's used in John to describe the mutuality and reciprocity of the relationship between God and Jesus. So when Jesus is inviting his followers into his father's house, he's inviting them to abide with the father, to be in mutual relationship with the father. Now, I don't know about you. This may be just more the younger people in the group, but I read this text and I cannot help but have the song in my head it's a big big house with lots and lots of room a big big table with lots and lots of a big big yard where we can play a big big house it's my father's house right it's a great song It's the song of my childhood right there And perhaps Jesus is talking about a place. And perhaps Jesus is using a metaphor. But either way, what Jesus is communicating when he's describing this house with many dwelling places is perfect communion with God. That's the trajectory. That's where the comfort for these troubling times ahead comes from. We see embodied in the relationship between the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer, this divine hospitality, and Jesus is inviting us into just that. And what's more, Jesus tells us in verse 4, and you know the way to the place that I am going huh of course since Thomas is thinking very literally about this concrete mansion with a very literal address he responds to Jesus in quite a confused manner as is typical of the people in John and he says Lord we do not know where you're going how can we know the way Now, verse 6 in this passage is where many of us start to get uncomfortable. We know this verse. It has been used as proof texts over and over again throughout our lives to preach the exclusivity and the supremacy of the Christian church for over a thousand years. And truth be told, I was pretty anxious when... I found out what scripture I had to preach this morning when I met with Todd on Tuesday. I said, oh sure, you get to tell everyone that Jesus is the good shepherd. (laughs) Guys, that preaches. And now I have to go back and say, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. And when I told Hannah that was my passage, she just went. Good luck. But as I was studying this John 14 passage, I experienced so much healing from reading various perspectives on this text. And there were some beautiful messages from all across the theological spectrum. And much of what is hard about this text is the way that it has been wielded throughout history. But the message here in John 14 holds profound comfort for those who follow Jesus. Because when Jesus tells his friend, I am the way, he is not talking about a geographical trajectory or a ticket to be beamed up. Jesus is hearkening back to Jewish wisdom tradition that we find in the Old Testament. The way, or in Hebrew, derek, connotes a lifestyle in the Old Testament. It's those who have accordance with the teachings of sages. A metaphor to describe a life lived either in accordance with the law or in accordance with the will and desire of God. In this context, the way is not used strictly as a route to somewhere else but as an expression of the followers' unity with God. When Jesus tells his disciples they know the way, he can say that confidently because it's been three years that he has been walking with them day in and day out, and they have been observing and learning and practicing this way of life. Jesus is revealing himself not just as access to God, but also as the embodiment of life with God. He's saying, I've shown you how, now walk in step with God. You know, at Kids Night, we have been following a year long theme, Kids on the Way. And I left our poster up here so you can see it. Kids on the Way the way of life and what we've been exploring together is how to love the way that Jesus loves and our image for that pilgrimage journey is a path it's a way Now, oh, it's important to remember the context of this scripture you know when we were meeting in our home gatherings just a few weeks ago, one of our members said, as they were thinking about how do you talk about Jesus to people that are close to you, and he wondered, gosh, you know, I wonder about the people I meet around the world who didn't grow up learning the Christian faith. What is their faith? And, He wasn't the only person sitting around the table who was weighed down by that question. And I would argue, along with some scholars, that Jesus isn't talking about that here. Jesus is talking about something very different. He is... John is speaking and writing to a community of Jews who have been following and in communion with God for thousands of years along the way. And he's not saying this as a redaction or a renunciation of the Jewish tradition. He's not negating the thing that he's been a faithful practitioner of his whole life. But what John is saying in verse 6 is the incarnation does something in the lives of the people who have been worshiping God all along. The incarnation changes the nature of our relationship with God. Why the Old Testament does use the term father as a metaphor for God or parent, It's not the primary metaphor in the Old Testament. It's kind of infrequent. God is presented as fathering a nation, as a protector. But father isn't the way that they talk about God throughout the whole Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is a husband. God is a potter. God is a rock, a fortress, a stronghold, like we heard in our psalm this morning. God is a shepherd. God is a gardener, a shield. But it's Jesus who first begins to speak of God and to God as Abba in this intimate way. It's Jesus's primary label for God. And Abba is a term that is imbued with both intimacy and obedience. In Jesus' father-son relationship with God, God is present, involved, close. And Jesus' incarnation, sorry, Jesus' interaction with God as father sustains and directs his step throughout his life and ministry. Indeed, it is only through the incarnation that the identity of God as Father, as that intimate father-child relationship, is revealed. Jesus doesn't say here, no one comes to God except through me. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because before Jesus, God wasn't in that role with the people. the specificity of that theological term needs to be taken really seriously. The incarnation has redefined God for the people in John. Because it brings the tangible presence of God's love to the world. God's not a generic deity in John. God is the one whom the disciples come to recognize in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when Philip says to Jesus, just show us the father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus' response is so wonderful to me. It's like that intimate kind of frustrated, but also affectionate way of being that Jesus has with his disciples. Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And you still don't know me? I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. It is in Jesus that the cosmic unknowable force which brought the world into being has become intimately present and knowable. And in many ways, Jesus' word in John 14 is the culmination of the entire biblical narrative, which is to lead us to a new kingdom in perfect communion with God. This passage serves not to exclude people, of the world from access to god but as a confessional celebration of the particular faith community convinced of the truth and life that is to be found in jesus john is saying to the church this is what it means to believe so i say to you church let not your heart be troubled. We have been told these things so that in Jesus we may have peace. In this world we will have trouble. But take heart. Jesus, through his unique and beautiful way, has overcome the world.